welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Ron. I'm Lindsay. I'm Jay. And this is our review of An American Werewolf in London, starring David Naughton, Ginny Agater, Griffin Dunn, and John Woodvine, written and directed by John Landis. Released in 1981 on a $5.8 million budget, it grossed over $62 million at the box office and achieved critical acclaim. It was also one of Michael Jackson's favorite movies, which is why John Landis did the Thriller video. Yeah. But besides that, why are we talking about this? I think that's my fault, because as I mentioned on the uh, Wolf of Snow Lake review, werewolves are like a big hole in my uh, cinematic viewing experience. In fact, I, there's only been one previous werewolf movie in the film strip lexicon, and that was Silver Bullet. You go all the way back to like episode 57 or something like that. And then I haven't seen a lot of werewolf movies. In fact, I, I'll tell you both now, I didn't see this until maybe four or five years ago, finally. I'd seen clips of it in like Terror in the Isles and stuff. I felt like I knew it just from pop culture or whatever, but I never watched it. And I'd seen The Howling and most of The Howling too, I think. And, uh, you know, I just haven't seen a lot of werewolf movies. So I I think, Rob, we were talking about it even back then. And I said, okay, I'm just going to go and watch this. It was on Prime or something. And I watched it. I was like, okay, now I get it. Now I get what everybody was you know talking about for... (laughs) all these years and you know five or six years later it finally pops up on the show so that's that's how it goes yeah see previous episode wolf of snow hollow uh for basically the genesis of this particular podcast Lindsay, what's your background with american werewolf in london i saw it for the first time this morning for this podcast yeah i'd never seen it before wow and I guess werewolves are kind of a hole in my viewing repertoire. I've seen Monster Squad, which has a werewolf in it, and Harry Potter famously has a werewolf in it. But that that's about it. So this was my this was my first ever viewing. I was watching it, watching it fresh. Now you don't see the Wolfman's Nards in Monster Squad. <laughs> you don't. You can kind of see the Wolfman's Nards at several points in this movie, except not when he's Except not in werewolf form, but yeah, no, I more of just a giant bush, circa seventies style, I guess, as was that era. I don't know. Early eighties. It is nineteen eighty-one, and as Jay and I discussed many times on our Friday the Thirteenth series, which is also available in the Filmstream archives, the seventies lasted until about nineteen eighty-six. That sounds. That feels right. Yeah, I could not tell you the first time I watched this movie because it was that long ago. I've watched it dozens of times. It contains some of my favorite special effects work of all time. And I will go to bat for Rick Baker and anything he's ever done because this is absolutely phenomenal work on his part. And watching it fresh uh, for the podcast, I was struck again by just how painful it looks. And I know that's kind of jumping ahead. We'll get to that at some point, but I'm a longtime fan of this movie. I'm a longtime fan of werewolves as monsters. I'm a longtime fan of werewolf movies in general. Um, You know, one of my formative experiences was watching the, uh, 
the Fox werewolf show, the Fox network werewolf show that came on in like 92 or 91. It was one of the first like things I remember them specifically showing on Fox. Uh, I watched the first five seasons or so of the teen wolf MTV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, I have a, I have a, a long time, uh, interest in lycanthropes, uh, probably because of this movie and because of the howling. Yeah, I always forget Teen Wolf. Like, I never mention that when I'm talking about werewolf movies. I've seen that as much as I've seen anything Michael J. Fox did, you know, outside of Back to the Future. I just never think of that as a werewolf movie because it's so many other things, I think. And it's so light touch with the wolfy, go wolf yourself. I, I think I remember that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the the girl in the theater and, and him and him in his little Civil War suit. I don't even know what they were doing. It was crazy. But yeah, I, I know that one. But as far as like werewolves as a scary thing, I have seen the Wolfman Universal Monster, uh, of course. And you know, that's kind of horror homework for somebody like me, but it didn't make a huge impression. And then I remember when Benicio del Toro remade that sort of several years ago. And I just thought, well, he already looks like a half wolf anyway. And I didn't see it. And then there was a Jack Nicholson wolf movie. And I was like, no, we're just, we're not doing that. So it was, it's, it's one of those things I haven't experienced a lot of, but again, I feel like I knew this movie from its reputation and, and that transformation scene again, that was in like a terror in the aisles or one of those clips things. And it's, it's iconic. I mean, just you, I, I think everybody knows that. And then you mentioned Rick Baker. I mean, he won the very first makeup special effect Academy Award. And it's amazing that it took that long to get one. But he, he you know, basically built the category for him because this was so amazing. Still waiting on that uh, stuntman Oscar. But, you know, maybe before too long it'll happen. Oh, yeah, no, we can I, just nominate I, 10 films nobody's seen still. But, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh no, I would be interested in rewatching Wolf at some point, the Jack Nicholson movie you're talking about, if only because Jack Nicholson pees on the guy. <laughs> Which that's probably not that's probably not something that he hasn't done in real life as well, so <laughs> I mean, who's to say at this point? So but in movies that don't feature that do feature some peeing but not peeing on anyone, Jay would you mind giving us the plot summary for American Werewolf in London? I, I will try. I will, I will give you what I, this is actually my memories of this as an hour before recording. I just sat down and said, okay, let me see what I can pull together. So you, you guys will have to tell me if I miss stuff. So <clears throat> super rich boy, New Yorkers, David and Jack are backpacking through Yorkshire when they come upon a pub, the slaughtered lamb where they were warned to stay up on the roads and away from the moors as they leave. They ignore this, of course, as good idiot American tourists do, and they're attacked by a large creature that mauls and kills Jack while entering David. David wakes up in the hospital three weeks later, confused as to what happened. He's haunted by strange, violent dreams. We're going to talk about the Nazi werewolf machine gunners at some point. He's also visited by the rotting corpse vicious of Jack, who tells him that they were attacked by a werewolf and that Jack's soul is caught in limbo until the beast lineage is wiped out, meaning David needs to kill himself. Alex, a nurse who provides care for David, invites him to stay with her upon his release from the hospital, and the two begin a passionate love affair. David is still haunted by those dreams, and when the full moon comes, he transforms into a werewolf and goes on a killing spree. The next day, he has no memory of what happened, but later realizes he is indeed a werewolf and will kill again. 
He's unable to kill himself, though, and runs away from Alex, taking refuge in a seedy theater. Meanwhile, Dr. Hirsch from the hospital has gone to the pub the guys visited and become convinced of the werewolf threat. And Alex confesses that she's been with David and the two race to the theater at Piccadilly Circus. But in spite of uh, one more visit from his ghastly, ghostly victims, David's unable to kill himself in time and transforms, killing several patrons in the theater. And then the David werewolf bolts from the theater, kills a police officer, causes a huge car pile up that results in many deaths, Falls his way through the crowd as the police give chase. And Alex finally makes her way past authorities and finds David the werewolf crouched in a dark alley. And she declares her love for him as authorities shoot the beast who transforms back into the dead David and credits roll right into the Marcel's blue moon. And that's what I remembered of American Werewolf in London. I can't think of anything you missed. I think you got a lot of it. Yep. I think you covered it. I guess the thing about this is that it is pretty simple and it's economical. And I accredit that to the fact that it was written in 1969 by our director here, John Landis, while he was working on Kelly's Heroes. He scratched this thing out, had it sitting there, and it sat on a shelf for a long time. And if you think about the way movies were made in the 60s, particularly cheap horror movies, like they're not a lot to them. Like they're pretty simple. And this one's pretty simple too. Like it, if if you were to you know go through and you could trim out some things that are probably you know more updated when he got around to actually making the thing you'd have an hour long movie when it's all said and done yeah i believe like i was a teenage werewolf is like an hour and 10 minutes or something an hour yep. and 20 minutes which is another which is another one of my favorite movies but yeah this yeah i agree this, there. yeah i love uh, that the uh the backstory to this movie is fascinating to me because I forgot John Landis was involved with Kelly's heroes. Yeah. Been around a long time, you know, before he you know became a thing. And, uh, you know, of course everybody knows the notoriety and notoriousness he uh, you know, came to in his career, but he's had a long career and you're seeing him at the beginning of it. And we did a Landis flick last year when we did blues brothers, you know, and we talked about that and, um, this one I think has a lot or owes a lot to blues brothers. And apparently the way he got the permit to shoot in Piccadilly circus was he, he screened, uh, the blues brothers movie for like all the cops in, you know, that side of London or something like that. Like that's how he bribed them to let them do it. And so they all got to see like an advanced copy or something like that. That's cool. Yeah. Like I say, it's a pretty economical script, and I I think the the lasting part of this, if there's anything, it's the blend of the horror and the comedy. And we talked a little bit about that on Wolf of Snow Hollow, but I don't know, Lindsay. I think the problem sometimes with horror comedies is that they just tend to be comedies that have a lot of blood in them. You know, there's really yeah. no good scare, and this one does, in my opinion, does a good job of balancing the two things. I agree. It was lighthearted enough and just scary enough to strike the balance just right. I also really appreciated the length. I know we were just talking about it being economical. After watching so many, I feel like recently every movie I've watched is at least two and a half hours long. (laughs) So to see that one movie, that this movie was only an hour and a half or so, I was just like, yes, excellent, fantastic. yeah, I think you texted me. They said that you had, you had been in the midst of uh, watching a bunch of uh, like music biopics or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> I did do that. And then I ended up watching 
Cruella on Disney Plus mm-hmm. for the first time. I hadn't seen that. Something, just side note, probably one of the best origin stories I've seen in a really long time. Yeah, I thought they struck a good balance there with the comedy and the horror. And I think a lot of the comedy is at the feet of Griffin Dunn, who I have, you know, you've seen him act for years and years and years at this point. And the guy is just, he has such a presence. And I'll give Landis a lot of credit because in the background stuff that I read, he told Griffin Dunn, when you come back as the, you know, mauled ghost thing or whatever, I don't want you to be angry. I want you to be as like chipper and calm and cool as you tell your best friend to kill himself. And it's so disarming. That was so well done. That scene in the smutty theater where they're all introducing themselves as the people that he's killed as a werewolf. They, that whole scene is just on it's spot on. It's just the right amount of hilarious. Yeah. Griffin Dunn really has great comic timing and it's really interesting how well, Griffin Dunn and David Naughton specifically play off of each other in, in a way that I really find appealing. And they, they establish it really early on in the movie that these guys are like longtime friends. They're really close and they've got a really, they, they have a, they have really funny relationships with each other. I think they have a lot of fun back and forth inside joke, almost kind of things, which is something that comes a lot in the script, I'm sure, but that also comes a lot from the interplay that the two actors have. And I think that the movie with those two characters and specifically David Naughton and Griffin Dunn, I think that is a much better choice than who the studio wanted for this movie, which was Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. Really? That would have been a very different. It would have been. Yeah, that's a that's an entirely different movie. That's the Blues Brothers meet the werewolf. That's what that is. (laughs) Which also would have been good, I'm sure. But it would have been different. Ackroyd was supposed to play David. And um, Jack was supposed to be, of course, Belushi. Right, right. Which which feels right to me. But Mm -hmm. honestly, I think that would have been a real distraction from the movie to have those two. Yeah. Especially at this point. You know, Belushi's pretty, pretty far into his coke days. Yeah, and I mean, and they were so well known at that point. Like David Naughton and Griffin Dunn. You mentioned this one. Nobody knew who Griffin Dunn was. He wanted to have this you know, incredible career. David Naughton had a career. Uh, it was a different one. I think he's mostly known for this, and that's you know fine. He didn't seem to you know mind it. But they were they were new. They were fresh. But they looked like you know, what we tried to pass off as young 20 somethings, you know, Landis constantly refers to them as, as the boys, you know, and it's, it's, I mean, there's so much heavy handedness in this movie sometimes though, that like it could in the hands of a less skilled director and less good actors, that's bad grammar, but you know, of of people that don't, don't aren't giving this what it, you know, what it has, you know, the fact that the two guys who end up incredibly dead at the end of the movie show up, in a trunk full of sheep to a pub called the slaughtered lamb in the opening scene. <laughs> I mean, geez, you know, like that, that kind of thing usually is like, ah, I'm going to beat that, you know, cause it's, it's dumb, but it plays off well. And I've never traveled to the UK. The two of you have. So how replicable was the experience of the slaughtered lamb from what things y- y'all have experienced? 
I found a few things in my experience to be pretty spot on. One, the slaughtered lamb, the little um, sign hanging right outside the pub. Yeah. It's super common. All the pubs have those signs. They're not always as, you know, vulgar or bloody, but they, they it's usually some kind of animal like the red wolf or the white stag or, you know, something like that. It, it's accurate that they do not serve food, <laughs> a lot of them. Right. And I can tell you, it took me probably two and a half, three days in England before I finally figured out where to acquire something to eat <laughs> on a semi-regular <laughs> basis. I was like, when is dinner here? I don't, that was the only, that was the weirdest culture shock for me because I just assumed like, yeah, you know, you're in a city, they have food. And I was thinking a pub like you'd get here stateside and no, they don't really have food there. They do at certain times of day, but Mm. it's usually the ones I went to anyway, pretty specific. Otherwise, you're just going and drinking and it's a bunch of regulars (laughs) who go there all the time and you are not one of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they weren't rude, to be fair. Like there, it's never like a rude situation, but you definitely feel out of place. I did, but I think I just generally feel out of place all the time, everywhere, anyway. So <laughs> that might just be me. <laughs> no, I felt pretty out of place where I was, and I and I tended to hit a lot more. I tended to hit a lot more touristy spots or infamous spots because we did a. Uh, East London Jack the Ripper tour, yeah. and I went to the um, the Seven Bells or whatever it was the um, the pub where like his last victim was drinking before she was murdered, um, where they think he was there, and you know, and when we went to we went to Canterbury and we went to uh, we went up to Scotland and Scotland the the place where we stayed in Scotland in Stirling was this place called the Portcullis. It was a it used to be a school in like the 1700s or something. And it was this beautiful old building that had a view of Sterling castle uh, in the background. And then downstairs was the pub and the pub felt a ton like the slaughtered lamb, like a, the, a nicer version of the slaughtered lamb in the sense that it's a bunch of locals and like the 10 people who were staying at the hotel, maybe. And you walked down there and you felt like I felt like I was in an, another another world not let alone another country all right so it sounds like y'all had similar experience lizzie you alluded to it ron you did a little bit too i think it's interesting how they walk in and they're obviously not from there and it's i mean very clear that they're not wanted there either and all it took was just asking about the giant pentagram on the wall to screw up the guy's dark game and it was it was, it was all on at that point i i got a kick out of that i'm laughing at this though because like I said, the the balance of the horror and the comedy here is really well done, and that's not an easy thing to achieve. And it's funny because when the 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 bald guy jumps up and starts telling his story about the the his joke about the plane going to the United Nations, when I was in Sterling, we had one of the most interesting slash most racist conversations that I've ever had with someone in a bar. <laughs> because I was, he was like. A little nice, nice guy, a little short guy bought me a beer. So I'm going to talk to him. He was like, from America. I was like, yep. Because I mean, I had a big beard like I do now and I, I had it then. And he was like, from America, what part? And I was like, oh, Kentucky. And he was like, oh, I used to, uh, you know, I used to ride racehorses because he was like five foot tall. And he was like, you know, 
I rode uh, mm-hmm. some racehorses on the circuit here, Kentucky Derby, Kentucky Fried Chicken, all that stuff. I was like, yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> and then somebody's like, and somehow he gets around to, there's a lot of black people in America, right? I was like, uh, kind of, I, I guess, mean, compared yeah. to Scotland. He was like, yeah, we don't have any, like, there's no minorities in this part of Scotland. It's just, like, all white people and then, like, three Asians who run the chip shop or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so he's asking me all these questions about what it's like to be like around black people and it was the that weirdest conversation i've ever had it's like i don't know man they're just like they're just like us you know they're just like anybody else <laughs> yeah. you know there's nothing that they're 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 all sorts of people you know black white and other the and it was just he was fascinated by the thought that like i live in a town that's like racially mixed it was the right yeah the, the idea, that idea is completely completely you know backward but no i i did get a kick out all the all the bar patrons though because again they're they're there and the old barmaid lady like she she stopped short of like no boys don't go you know because she knows like if you send them out into that man like that's you're sending them to death you know and i but i love the ominous part of that because again this this movie is is fleet it doesn't waste any time of getting us right into the the action as it were because as i said in the plot summary these you guys completely ignore the one thing there you know it's like billy and gremlins like you know it does everything wrong and they they're gonna both do what they want to do i like you said at the beginning jay efficient it's very it's a very efficient film so what'd you make of the initial attack of the the first werewolf guy um who i just called i don't know who you know he had a character's name or whatever i was like this the lead singer from radiohead is what he looks like <laughs> after they shot him you know and i was like okay it's it's, it's tom york attacks and, and murders him i i was for a movie that is 41 years old at the time that we're doing this podcast the way that those effects still hold up i credit not only to rick baker but i think to the way john landis cuts this movie and the way that it it works is that you don't see it for too long and it's just enough it's like the shark in jaws yeah i think there's only one point where it lingers on not necessarily the gore, but the makeup for just a little too long. But it didn't take me out of it. That was when the first, um, when his friend shows up and he's first, his first ghostly appearance, I guess you could say, before he's totally rotting. Yeah. And that, when I first saw it, my first thought was, that is an amazing makeup job. That's fantastic. And then there was just a little bit too much of a close up and you could see the prosthetic kind of where that where that met his face but honestly it was still fantastic work so many intestines yeah. like yeah. with every attack there were a lot of intestines going on there there's lots of disemboweling i guess the werewolves mm. have to eat like that's a thing so. yeah and this is one of those movies that i think the transition to digital to specifically to high def allows you to see a little bit more than you used to be able to see because mm-hmm. I never remember mm-hmm. seeing the seams on the, the makeup, but you're right. You can kind of see a, just a little bit up where it meets his face. Yeah. Just on his cheek. Yep. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It's like watching Star Trek, the the original, you, you can see it all on their face, you know, but in all fairness, like I, that it was toward the end of that scene when that started to kind of, so he'd probably been wearing it and talking with it and filming with it on for hours at that point. So really, I mean, still a great job. Great makeup job. 
yeah, it still looks good. And the fact that 40 years, 41 years later in high def, the only thing we could point to is like one slight scene. You can see <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. At the very end of the scene, it's, it's, it's really impressive, man. It's really yeah, shiny I- and it's really slimy. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's just so it's gross. Everything's just I mean, he's clawed apart. But it's it's what you would expect would happen from a wolf attack or a large clawed teethed creature, you know, what it would do to you if it got a hold of you. I mean, it rips Jack limb from limb, basically, and you know, David gets the cut on the I mean he gets the scratch in the face of these cut on the arm or something or bitten on the arm or whatever. And no, he's got claw furrows down his yeah. chest. We we see it that's later right. in the movie. Yeah. He spent three and that's weeks scabbing? in the hospital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's scab work on the claw marks on his chest. I was also super impressive. Like that looks really real. That was the the makeup and the special effects in this movie were were great, much better than I expected as a first right. time viewer. Yeah, I mean that's the. I mean, I think if people know that about this movie, they know the effects and uh, from it. But I think I go back to what we were talking about, Lindsay. Too Griffin Dunn is so good at just being sort of the little evil Jiminy Cricket. Like, well, it's time to die now. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's just like, you got to kill yourself, Davis. The only yeah. way, you know, he's just so funny and. I mean, it's so just the deadpan way he delivers it is great. And I, I got a kick out of that. I got a kick out of the Frank Oz who, I mean, you talk about lines of Coke. I don't know if he did rails or not, man, but he, he, he was straight Bozzy bear in that scene. We're yelling at that guy in the hospital and you've got, you know, all the nurses hovering around all this. And it's just, it's just chaos uh, there. And that's the mark of a, you know, a big comedy that like we, we talked about that in blues brothers, you know, that there was just, chaos happening around Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi most of the time. And that's what made it funny is they're just sort of straight through it, you know, and David's sort of that too. He's reacting to all of it, but he's not going too big himself. And they did have, so those detectives, when they came in, in the doctor's office, I think there were, there were some very like pink Panther moments (laughs) when he, when he drops all those balls and he's trying to put them back together. And I think those detectives, every time they showed up on screen, it was just, it was just a mini, mini pink Panther vignette is what it felt like, which also kind of added a nice little layer of comedy. That's a great pull. I did not think pink Panther, but you say that and that, yeah, I can totally get that. That's, that's fantastic. Those two detectives, I'll give you a clean take. Those two detectives were a really funny pairing. And it reminds me a lot of if you ever watch any like cozy mysteries, whenever there's like cops that show up and interfere with our cozy mystery heroine or hero or like Midsummer Murders, there's always like one kind of straight laced, got it together cop. And there's always like the young kind of goofy ish partner type. And and this feels like something that has permeated pop culture or was already always a part of pop culture that has just come further and further into the forefront. I think Brian Johnson is a huge fan of all of that that you just mentioned and of this movie, because Knives Out is replete with that, you know, with with, uh, Daniel Craig and all the other Mm -hmm. actors in that. Um, But I think of David Suchet and you all those the times when 
in college, I dated somebody that watched a lot of British television. So therefore I did as well. <laughs> and so I got to see a lot of that stuff. And cause I only knew David Suchet as the you know, evil dictator pilot guy in Iron Eagle for years, which <laughs> my girlfriend at the time was abhorred by. I think you're right. I mean, that it's, it's a trope that would seem familiar to everyone at the time. And then it gets repeated and repeated over. And it's also why this works is because you still see that today. Right. And mm-hmm. like Lindsay pointed out with the Pink Panther stuff, like you can immediately feel like there's a Clouseau, Blake Edwards, you know, riff going on through this. Cause we've got to have like light moments in between this horrific violence. <laughs> because if there's one thing I'll say about some of the werewolf movies I've seen or that I know exist, the thing that turned me off to the idea of them was they just take themselves too seriously. And it's like, hey, you, you got to be able to balance the fun with, with this. And, um, you know, it's it's an old monster movie. I mean, in 1980, the studio didn't know what this was. Slasher movies hadn't really made it yet. I mean, there's only two at that point, and there were three if you really want to think about it. And so they, they hadn't figured out, you know, how to crank those out where they were money-making machines. So this was a real gamble. Uh, and to throw that much money on this thing, man, $6 million for this movie? Like, that's a lot of dough. Like, I was surprised that they spent that much on this, but... Landis had had pulled in hits, man. That Blues Brothers money went a long way. So, yeah, and more importantly than that, like he, but th- at this point of his career, he had been a proven like hit maker because, like, yeah, Kentucky Fried Movie was a big hit, and his first movie was actually a movie he made in seventy one called Schlock, which is like a caveman movie that he uses <laughs> a lot of the techniques that you see in this movie more ref- that are more refined he uses a lot of similar stuff to shoot around himself playing the caveman schlock in schlock mm-hmm. so it's it's pretty fun to watch you kind of watch his growth as a filmmaker but also see that sense of because you know kentucky fried movies just a bunch of vignettes strung together with mm-hmm. like a very thin you know connective tissue this has much stronger connective tissue but it's also very much feels like a vignette movie because you've got little sections that feel self-contained and then uh you know david naughton wakes up in jenny agater's bed and with no memory of how he got there or what he did yeah well and let's talk about him in the hospital and sort of you know he gets visited by jack and we you know that we've done that and talked about that scene and then he has those nightmares afterward and there's the one where Alex, the nurse, wakes him up and he's got that face. And for years, y'all, I thought that face, that visage thing, when he's got, it's almost like a vampire thing. I thought that was out of like Salem's Lot or something. Like I, I didn't remember that that was part of this movie. So you have that dream and then you have the Nazi werewolf machine gun dream too. <laughs> like what in the hell is that? I, I got questions. Like what? Those that that even, one's the one that I don't get. I, I don't those know. Are family gets wiped those, out. Are like, those are like goblins or mutants uh, or something yeah, yeah they're like orcs or... yes, orcs is good orcs. yeah mm-hmm. yeah well why is he dreaming of nazi orcs shooting his family up in new york that's well, what i want to know why do you dream about anything i feel like that's kind of just well, it depends on the couch and we'll talk you know i don't know <laughs> i don't know i just took it as this is just a bizarre dream and it was i mean very dreamlike because they don't always make sense or, you know, they're not always streamlined, but maybe, maybe it was just a poorly 
executed scene. I don't know. I just kind of took it at face value. Like, oh, it's just a weird dream. We've all had those. I don't think it was poorly executed at all. I feel like it was really well executed for what it's supposed to be, which is this is him. To me, I've always read it as this is his brain being changed by the lycanthropy infection and his body starting to get to the change where he's going to become a werewolf. And it, it, the dreams seem to pick up the closer that they get to the full moon. Mm-hmm. I, I have a theory about it. Um, and it goes along with some of what you both have said, but his whole family gets wiped out and he's held at knife point and can't do anything about it, but he could if he wanted to, but he doesn't. So it's almost like I'm, I'm a person and I'm powerless when the wolf takes over because these are sort of partial wolf things. And there's a subtext in this too, where he's, he's clearly Jewish. His, you know, his friend is Jewish. And so Nazis going in and attacking them. There's a fear sort of ingrained in that. And I think, I think he's just having a nightmare that, you know, what he would have. And it's along what you're saying, his wolf brain is letting him know, like, when we're in charge, you're going to sit there like I got a knife to your throat. There's nothing you can do about it. And he's, you know, he's afraid he's going to wipe out everybody around him. And I I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, completely batshit crazy dream in the middle of this thing, but it's striking in, in as well, because I mean, they, they shoot everybody, but then they take time to like, you know, that bay window by the kitchen, F that. Blow that away, too. <laughs> they just got into part. Um, I, I don't know. I thought that was neat. I, am, am, am I crazy? Am I, do I need to lay on the couch a little longer and explore my dreams? I don't know. No, I definitely get where you're going with that. And I feel like it has a lot to do with his lack of control and mm-hmm. with just how destructive we see the wolf being like later, specifically later on in the movie, especially towards the end, that just by its existence, it creates untold amounts of chaos in the lives of everyone around it, whether it intends to or, or not. And so I feel like that they're they're I feel like it's almost Landis and company foreshadowing. Like if you think this is crazy and this is just a lot of random destruction, just wait till we get to Piccadilly Circus. I think too the 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 way the dream sequences got closer together and the way they were cut together so I had a friend tell me once that schizophrenia feels like you can't tell the difference between real life and dreaming. Hmm. And as I was watching this whole sequence and all these dreams get closer and closer together and get closer and closer to um to David's reality, I was like, oh, this feels exactly like that explanation that I got one time, which makes sense because he's morphing into into two totally different things at this yeah, it's point. That Jekyll and Hyde mind thing yeah. going on and all that. So, so we, we got to talk about Alex, though, um, and her whole <laughs> thing here. Um, her bad kissing self. Well, there's that, and there's just the I I am yet to completely understand the motivation, and maybe it's I'm old, and this is 2022, and I just cannot imagine a scenario like this. It's also because this would never happen to me, so I don't I don't get how you 
you know, nurse somebody back to health and you're like, I'm very attracted to you, David. Come live with me. Like just out of nowhere. Like it's a freaking lifetime movie all of a sudden. From 20 I'm pretty sure minutes. that's how my parents meet cute went. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. My mom was a nurse and my dad was injured and that's how she met him. Wow. <laughs> he was in the oh, hospital. Wow. Yep. No, okay. Then. Is your dad a werewolf? <laughs> no, no. Uh, he was a marine now. So I mean, <laughs> was similar. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's got a and very beard. hairy. He's got a very, very hairy back. So he we could be a werewolf. You tonight than we would have ever known. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, we always joke that the hair migrated from the top of his head down his back, and that's where it all is now. He does live like far, far north. He needs good fur to stay. Yeah, yeah, he does. He's in upstate New York, and he doesn't listen to this podcast. And even if he did, I think he'd laugh. So I feel very comfortable saying that on here. Shout out to Lindsay's dad. Uh, It's it's funny because I was going to bring up a friend of mine who spent like a month in the hospital after having like open heart surgery. And when he got out of the hospital, he dated one of his nurses for like six months. Wow. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that happens to good-looking people, Jay. Not to oh, yeah, well, yeah, thanks. Yeah, because I, I clearly I know what the problem is. Also, I spent all of my time in a hospital when I was a kid, like a little kid, like eight, nine, ten years old. So, I. I don't go unless I absolutely have to. I can't tell you the last time I was in the hospital. I probably was in college and it was some injury I sustained to myself, but it was, yeah, there was, even then when I had a lot of hair and was halfway cute, it didn't, didn't matter. You uh, mean but, in it or have you just, you don't go to visit either? Like if you know uh, someone I, in I've it? only been to visit a couple of family members. Like it's not a. I that, think that's it, fair. There's yeah, a smell. Yeah. I, yeah, there's yeah, just a very uh, visceral. Yeah, it's not not go, a thing I, I do. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't go visit. The last time I spent any time in the hospital was second grade, and if any nurses were attracted to me, then they're probably in jail. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you didn't know, but so she takes him home, and we do get. I will say that like the sweetness of this movie is not lost on me, and the fact that they have like very realistic ish love scenes going mm-hmm. on here, like it doesn't. It's not the typical, you know, thing you would see even in the 80s, but thinking to like the mid 80s through the 90s, what I call the sweet spot of the erotic thriller, you know, like some of that was just ridiculous, you know, what what would be going on. And this is, I don't know, it seemed very real. And I think that it punctuated by the fact that the next morning after their first night together, she just walks in the room wearing his NYU t-shirt, mm-hmm. you know, like a lesser movie she just would have walked in or a sitcom she just walks in with that shirt and you kind of know but i don't know i thought it was well done like i mean it, i'm not trying to be you know, weird or anything i'm just saying like it was really very real it felt like i feel like their whole relationship ended up feeling much realer for me than i'd expected from the beginning the beginning feels a little bit kind of mm-hmm. weird and strained but also Part of that is just because, you know, there is clearly a culture clash between the two of them. And mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, David is is a little weird and awkward anyway. Um, he does, neither one of them seem to be the most successful with uh, the women on this trip or just in general from their <laughs> from the tone of their conversation. But um, I, I think a lot of this is sold just by how, like, sweet. Alex is and how how well Jenny Agater puts across that 
you know, she's a fixer, but she's nice. You know, she's, and they, they, uh, and as their relationship kind of grows in the movie, it feels, it feels a little bit more comfortable, a little more lived in to me. It feels like a relationship that has matured and they know each other well enough to be perfectly comfortable, which kind of makes sense because she's literally spoon fed him. Right. Yeah. Among other terrible things she's probably had to do. Yes. <laughs> it's a shame at some point, right? I mean, so. he does take a leak with the door open. So there's, there's that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They, they're definitely a lived in. I, I credit a lot of it to our actors too, just having good chemistry with one another and clearly having some fun and going with it. She, she has a, a neat turn because David, says you know he loves her long before she in fact she doesn't say it until the end of the movie when she's basically just getting him to calm down long enough to not kill her Mm -hmm. in that moment and it's when he lunges when they shoot him but there's something neat about that that she clearly cares for him but she's not going to say it first and then this movie you know goes completely off the rails because she's got to work and He's just hanging out, which I love how she just sort of apologizes about, oh, I'm sorry about my apartment. It's so terrible. I'm like, this place is awesome, lady. What are you talking about? Like, yes. <laughs> I'm just a working girl. Don't expect much. I was like, that's and then good. That's actually something, because uh, Brian watched it with me this morning. That is something he commented on. He goes, man, she's saying, oh, hope you don't mind my apartment. And she continues to give him a tour of this apartment that's like twice the size of ours. <laughs> Right. And I was like, yeah, it's a really nice place. Yeah, Especially it, for London. Nobody lives in London like that. That's I mean, crazy. not anymore. Maybe you could. In yeah, right. That's but, true. That's true. I have to put this into context. Even for them, that's still a pretty posh area of London. So like her her shoeboxes is, is would be something people would be paying like 5,000 pounds a month for now. Because like, yeah, it's not it's a shoebox. It's like a... That's a that's a pre-war building. That's a nice building. Yeah. Oh no! There's it's, a it's living a, room and a kitchen right, and a bedroom. She's got shelf space. She's got yeah. the ice, the dual ice box that's thing going true. on. I mean, no, I was impressed. But I mean, that's the thing is when he's left to his own devices, you see the transformation start to take place, and you've got CCR's bad moon rising. We got some of the needle drops in this movie, you know, because it opens up with yeah. the Bobby Vinton kind of lounge act version of blue moon you know it's just real subtle or whatever and then you get ccr and that i mean you, everybody knows that song and it's it's banging and he's like the the sweat effects that they do on david naughton in this movie where he's just like freaking out and he's somehow hot he is and when he starts stripping himself off when that transformation happens i mean that is a striking striking scene not only because of the effects but he puts a lot into it. There's something that confused me about the set dressing. And I don't know if either of you guys have thoughts on that. There were a lot of Disney tchotchkes in there. Did you notice that? They were like Mickey mouse dolls all over the place. And I couldn't figure out why, like maybe she just has a thing for America and that's why she was attracted to this American guy to begin with. That's the closest, but I, I, I couldn't because they really honed in on Mickey Mouse quite a few times. That I mean, I think you hit it, Lindsay. I didn't, I didn't notice that or think about it, but I think you nailed it. It's she's got a thing for Americans, and you know what? If you don't have a McDonald's bag laying around, what else have you got in 1980? <laughs> Disney 
stuff. So well, I mean, and we do see a lot of like subway ads for Wendy's mm-hmm. <laughs> later on in the movie, <laughs> and and we do see that she works a lot with kids, so maybe that has something to do with. Oh, that's true. Yeah, she's always going to yeah. visit the kitty wing, as they would call it on Dark Place. Yeah, you just get the one little boy the that she's wing. always you know no. uh, playing with, and yeah, and cutting up with. No, I. I didn't notice that, but that's a great pickup. So um, I, I noticed that that living room is so like 70s shag red too. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's, you know, not on purpose because he's basically descending into hell when he transforms at that moment. I almost feel like John Landis has to be like a closet man city fan with how often they play blue moon in this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, th- that- I think I think Landis is just like he just breaks out his forty fives anytime he makes a movie. And we talked about the soundtrack in Blues Brothers, and I know Ackroyd and Belushi had a lot to do with that. But Landis is a is a mark for all that you know doo wop era kind of music. And then what would have been popular, you know, around the same time CCR was contemporary at that moment. Mm-hmm. I appreciate how on the nose the needle drops are in this movie. Just punch me in the face <laughs> with werewolf songs, and it's just a shame that like. Warren Zevon wouldn't put out Werewolves of London until after this movie, probably because of this I, movie. I was going to say, I imagine man, because of they this had movie, just like yeah. commissioned uh-huh. him to do that song at the end of this movie. I would, it, it would just be like top notch to me. Yeah. yeah it'd, be, it'd be real pretty. It would just remind me at the end when I'm doing my summary to talk about needle drops. Cause I got thoughts that don't relate directly to this movie, but to its lineage. And we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, but no, the, the first transformation though is astounding. Um, and I'll say this too, and it's, it's an era of movies that did this in the late seventies to the early eighties. And then we just stopped all of it. And now it only happens when Jude Law is having sexy chess, but male nudity <laughs> out of nowhere, like there's a ton of it in this movie. Like there is a lot of it in this movie. You it's see making a-, a comeback, I think, but well, yeah, on, on like HBO, they have to show a lot of penises apparently. But- <laughs> Yeah, Game of Thrones. Well, Not what and, I meant, but yeah, and, yeah. And the Swedish Santa movies that we've talked about, Ron. Yeah, uh, rare, rare exports is a real <laughs> reindeer sausage fest. But no, right. it's. I think a lot of the nudity, especially in this movie, has to is going to show how vulnerable, uh, how vulnerable he is. Yeah. During these transformation moments, and then after these transformation moments, because it's like, it, you know, uh, the scene in the park after his first transformation is funny it's really funny to me it remains one of my favorite yeah. scenes in the movies the um the balloon bandit or whatever uh, specifically in the first transformation it's it is so much scarier because he's naked it feels mm-hmm. like there's nothing there's nowhere he can hide from this there's no way he can hide this and i feel like a lot of it has to is you know thumbs way up to rick baker as we've said and we will continue to say for making this look great and thumbs way up for David Naughton for selling the hell out of the transformation scenes. But the fact that he's naked and there, and there are no, like you can't, there's a lot of parts in the movie where you can't hide like, Oh, well he's clearly hiding a, you know, pneumatic tubes under his sleeves to make his hands grow real big and creepy or whatever. And, you know, make his face Mm -hmm. bulge out. They've taped some, stuff under his hat there's not a way for them to hide it and that makes it all the more visceral because it 
it's to me the closest thing I can compare it to would be especially the Cronenberg Fly because it's like yeah oh you want to you want to see some scary stuff you want some horror how about some body horror look at this guy's weird hands yeah look at his knees like just you know, in the yeah. wrong places and his feet get all weird it's 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 incredible. Yeah, I the spine watching that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, poke up. That was the best. That was the best part to me. When I saw when the hand got long, I think that was one of the first parts. I was like, this is weird. But then it all came together and I was into it. I do too like that they gave context for why he was ripping his clothes off. I think he yelled that he was burning up. Yeah, it was hot. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, instead of just ripping his clothes off for no reason, which I feel right, like yeah. wouldn't be uncommon. But, or like, I mean, no, it would be uncommon for him to rip his clothes off for no reason. <laughs> but to just see someone do that in a movie, I was just – I appreciated the context. That's all. Yeah, no, no. It, it, it all it all makes sense. That's what I was saying. Like, it's just so – it's so striking. And, mm-hmm. um and then when he goes on the rampage, you know, I mean, it's, uh, and I, there's like, I think the, the three homeless people that show up in the theater, like that got cut. <laughs> I, I have never seen a scene of it, but it must've been a heck of an attack on the, the guys, you know, warming themselves up by the fire or whatever, uh, down by Gotham Harbor or, or whatever they're doing there. But no, I mean, it, it, I think it, the funniest bit is he wakes up in that wolf pen uh, in the morning <laughs> and they're looking at him like, well, Phil, you had a hell of a night, you know, <laughs> like they're just like stand like the other wolf is looking at the other one, like, just stay away from it. Just stay away from it. We don't mess with those, so, you know, those hybrids. Also, but, the things actors will do. He was really naked, really laying in hay. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, that, that looks awful. can't have been comfortable. <laughs> no, that. That was not a, a good day, but no, it, it, but you have these, this horrific scene again, then punctuated by great comedy. Like you said, Ron, the scene with the, the little boy, the, try to get the balloon so he can hide and steal him the lady's coat. <laughs> and the, the man on the tube is looking at him like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, it's all this uncomfortable stuff uh, that's going on. But it's, I, I, I was blown away by it, but then I think it's neat how when he, gets back to the apartment finally and he's changing clothes like he's he's jacked he's just oh, he's just oh, he, you know, it is like the way uh, jeff goldblum plays the fly in the fly where he just gets all powered up you know and he's just constantly on like the sugar rush or something yeah i mean he has his full belly for the first time in a month so he probably feels very energetic Right. Yeah. Cause he wasn't eating anything else. He's never mm-hmm. hungry except just that, you know, he ate all these people or parts of them, you assume during the night. And that's, yeah, we get more Griffin Dunn coming back. And I love how like, as a, even as a ghost, he, he's rotting away. It's like mm-hmm. wherever his body is, they didn't, they just threw it in a box. They didn't do any work on him. He's just turning into a Muppet, uh, slowly, a horrific Muppet or Crypt Keeper as it were. But, he keeps coming back to go. I told you, I told you, David, you can't do this. You know, he's turning into the, um, the, the zombie on the table from return of the living dead. Ah, yeah. Very good. Very good. So what do you call a talking meatloaf? That's what yes. it was. Talking <laughs> I laughed so hard when he said, I'm sorry. I called you a meatloaf. <laughs> it was yeah. so great. I'm sorry I called you a meatloaf. It's the way he says it too. It's, uh, 
<laughs> but again, it's that lived-in relationship you talked about. That's mm-hmm. what makes it fun. But but no, but I, I I like the fact though that he's confused. Like he doesn't know what he you know what he has done or whatever. And we we really talk about it with with the Jack character and stuff. But what do you make of the the little trope that they give it there that things that are, or people that are killed by the werewolf are stuck in limbo until the, until the werewolf is dead. Like that gives you a ticking clock, like a reason to, you know, you can't just cage yourself up. You have to, you know, kill yourself. Yeah. And it gives us, and it gives the, the werewolf a reason to want to die Mm. because this is his best friend that he killed. And there's all these Mm -hmm. other innocent people that he goes on to kill. And I feel like, you know, being from uh, being a New York Jewish boy, he's going to have a lot of guilt anyway, just because right. it seems like everybody f- from an ethnic subculture in New York carries around a lot of guilt, be it's Jewish, Irish, or Italian. <laughs> and, right. uh, and so I that's feel like fair. that's a big part of him. Like that's a big part of his, his reason to want to kill himself. Even after, you know, he starts to enjoy the the sensation of being a wolf enjoy the feeling of fullness and i feel like it has to be horrifying in order for it to affect him and i feel mm-hmm. like he's got to feel guilty about it i mean clearly he does because of the way that he kind of goes off the deep end and he runs up to that bobby and he starts you know hurling out insults to do everything he can to try to get arrested because he's trying to get away from alex he's afraid something's going to happen and i laughed yeah, so I mean, loud at that scene i i, I yeah, laughed so much because it just when he just starts cursing just yelling curses i just what laugh. did he say the queen is a man or something yeah like it's, it's all, all these slurs it's just like the out. most ridiculous stuff <laughs> yeah, so to me the best part is when he's just <laughs> Like yelling, like shit, swear words. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna get the verbal morality statue machine <laughs> <laughs> over the side, you know, because he's just and they're like, oh, break it up, break it up now. And the comments like so, like it's so like- British too. It's just like eh, whatever. <laughs> and this is Trafalgar Square, which is where all, which is where people will just go and hang out by the plinths. People will go and just start talking in public. Like they'll bring a little box to stand up on it and just start orating, and it's <sighs> it's very much a place for like because I've been there, Lizzie, you've probably been there too. Yeah, it's very much a place where all the weirdos get crazy and all the street performers hang out. <laughs> it, it's, <laughs> it's like a free speech zone on campus, y'all. It hasn't changed much. <laughs> no, it is not. It's it looks exactly the same as it did, except there's more we, there's more weirdos now than there were in, in the eighties, <laughs> and probably more werewolves. I, I mean, I'm watching this, and I, I feel like I'm I'm seeing like places that years later I'd watch Tom Hanks run across in one of those Da Vinci movies or something. You know, it's just a, it's a famous yeah. place. You know, I've seen a lot of movies. The Muppets hung out there during the Great Muppet Caper. Great flick, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's it, it's it's something that would be iconic that everyone would know. But I, I again, I, I get the comedy of it is just he's being so ridiculous that he can't get anybody to listen to him, and he gets away from Alex. And I, I, we get like a real sweet moment when he calls back home. And his parents are gone to do something with his brother. He gets to talk to his kid sister, you know, and basically tell her goodbye because he knows he's done at that point. And I, I did have a question for y'all. I'm like, okay, so his parents went to his best friend's funeral. Neither one of them flew over there to see if he was all right. Like, really? Uh, that That's the one part I'm like, uh-huh. 
like I'm pretty sure uh, mom would have been on a plane. I don't know. I Maybe cross-country like- travel was daunting. And the embassy guy reached out to them and probably was like, he's good. You know, the best thing you can do is just let him stay here and recover. The guy who played the uh, embassy guy, I don't know if he actually had a name in the movie. He he does, but it doesn't matter. Is he, he, he sounds like Kermit the Frog. He's he's the voice of Fozzie the Bear and Miss Piggy. Is he? That's other. what it is. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. And then Floss. shortly after, they played a scene from the Muppets in mm-hmm. like the the. So I was wondering about that. Okay, see, yep. I thought yeah. one of you guys would know. Yeah, yeah, to- total, total. Uh, Frank Oz does a lot of walk-ons in tons of movies, but particularly Landis movies and all that stuff. He was in. Uh, he was the cop in uh, Blues Brothers when they're letting jake out yeah he gets to deliver the one prophylactic used used soiled one yeah <laughs> yeah and then he's also the cop in the booking scene in uh trading places when lewis is getting oh, that's right of him it's an upper you know he does that so line so that's that's what i know frank oz from is all i mean he's all the great work oh. he's done that you know, he's, he's also the voice of Yoda. I guess we should mention the thing he's probably most famous for. But, but I don't know. Fozzie the Bear is pretty famous. I mean, Fozzie, Yoda, yeah, it's a pretty – I mean, Fozzie's never been CGI rendered like a piece of plastic in a movie as far as I know. So, Not yeah. yet. Not I was yet. just about to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although if you watch to... the new Muppet Babies series that they did, he he's pretty, he's pretty creepily CGI'd in that. Okay, see, yeah, they, they need to leave things alone. Stop wrecking my childhood. No, I, I love how the, all of that, you know, he he, did, he has that sweet moment there, and then he breaks out the Swiss Army knife, and uh, my wife was like, you can't, you know, cut anything off of that. I was like, oh, contraire, contraire, there's a guy that sawed his friggin' arm off with one of those that had it caught in the rock in 127 hours. So, yes, you can. Mm. He just couldn't do it. I mean, if it's sharp enough, you you don't got to do much. But I mean, he's going across the tracks. Everybody knows you got to go down the street. Yeah, yeah you got to do the yeah. T. Like, yeah, you can't. Yeah, he was doing it wrong. But well, yeah, give him a just, break. He's never tried it before. That we. Know I mean, of. true. I also he's feel not, like as a as a city boy, like that's the best knife he can get access to in New York. Come on, like he'd have a switchblade. Not a nice kid who goes to NYU. Are you kidding? He's from the suburbs. Oh, he would have had one just to be cool. That's what I mean. Like, he had a switchblade yeah, or a butterfly to be cool. knife. Come on. Okay, true. true. Yeah. I don't if like, if he had whipped out a butterfly knife, that'd be. He pulls out the Rambo special that you can take on airplanes. Yeah. Yeah. While we're talking about this, Ron, as the resident werewolf expert, I have a question for you. And maybe it's answered in this movie, but I don't think it is. So they say a few times that the the line has to end in order for all of these ghosts to leave this like their middle ground or whatever wherever they're walking but then they say a few times that he specifically has to kill himself but he doesn't kill himself so my question is does he just have to die or does he specifically have to kill himself in order for the line to and he just has to die but they're tr- but um griffin dunn the griffin dunn character is trying to get him to kill himself before he kills anyone else they're wanting him to kill himself before the f- the next full moon okay see i had a question and they don't answer it in this movie but my thought was like if he tried to kill himself would it be like the incredible hulk 
and the wolf would just come out anyway at that moment to keep him from doing it? We'll never know. No, this yeah. one's this one is the cursed type werewolf. It's not the um, werewolf on demand. Werewolf on demand. <laughs> yeah, he didn't, he didn't pay for that upgrade package, so he just gets the, <laughs> the werewolf on demand of the Twilight series. Is what I in my head am referencing. Gotcha. Right no, now. this is the one with commercials. There we go. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one you get three free articles a month. Right. <laughs> there you go. Otherwise, it's subscription prices, kids. But yeah, no, I, I I did like that though because he knows it's going it's going to go bad. Well, just think about one of the things that they talk about is he says, "Don't I need a silver bullet to do that?" And then Griffin Dunn just kind of scoffs at him, like, <laughs> "Yeah, be serious." I love that part. Yeah, I, yeah, that's another funny part. But it also is, you know, he it doesn't take anything special to kill the werewolf. They just a bunch of guys with shotguns gun down the yeah. original one. I mean, and it, it, just a bunch of police with rifles gun this one down so it, it spoiler for the end of the movie <laughs> that's a 41 year old movie it, it doesn't seem to make him any more in any invul- any more invulnerable than a normal person would be it just gives him the bestial nature of the werewolf and obviously the teeth and the claws and the, the hunger so i don't right. think it I don't think there's any reason for him to kill himself other than the fact that they want him to not add to their number of, of revenants. Okay. That makes sense. So there's a lot of details in this movie, like little things, you know, Lindsay, you caught all the Disney tchotchkes. We've talked about like the color, the needle drop. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any bit of detail that I was more impressed with than the fact that John Landis shot a fake porno that had a storyline <laughs> to it for the third act of this movie because he winds up in the porno theater to see you next Wednesday, which I chuckled out loud. I laughed a lot at that too. That was great. So, I mean, <laughs> so people are getting little... it on. The guy breaks in. He's like, I told you not to do that anymore. Who are you? Oh, sorry. Wrong flat. And he just walks out the door. <laughs> it's like, I mean, like they, like he scripted that. Like it just blows my mind. I'm like, I mean, a lesser movie wouldn't bother to have that going on. It would just be something on the screen, but it's like its own subplot. Like, I feel like that probably that movie probably has its own website, you know, that people talk about it and stuff in. It's well, probably been, you know, I'm sure there's a spinoff somewhere. Well, Landis, Landis says, see you next Wednesday in every movie. And every yeah. time see you next Wednesday is in there, it's a different kind of movie. But to me that the, uh, those scenes mostly feel like outtakes from, uh, Kentucky Fried movie or Amazon Women on the Moon. It's like that's right, yeah, right. That's that's right there next to uh, No Soul and um, Danger Seekers and uh, A Fistful of Yen and all those. Yeah, things. it's like it's all that stuff. It's it's the the kind of a side jokes in like Airplane and all that. It's that same kind of stuff. It's just wacky. There are some bits direct that feel like they're directly lifted from Kentucky Fried movie, specifically like the Catholic high school girls in trouble opening segment, where it's just a riff of these, you know, Sam Arkoff B movies, uh, you know, women in prison flicks and, and that kind of stuff. So yeah, if there's one thing Landis has shown the capability of doing, it's to take a movie genre and distill it down to a thing that's like a minute long, and that is completely absurd, absurdist and funny. 
It's like the fake movie trailers in Grindhouse and all that stuff, mm-hmm. like those those kind of things. Or the fake know, movie the, trailers from the, from Tropic Thunder. Right. Yeah. Any of that kind of stuff. Like I I don't I I thought it was hilarious. I you know, but that was just me. Oh no, those were really funny, and it, and it's a nice counterpoint to how they do a, the similar setup in the Howling, which uh, we will have to talk about the Howling at some point. Howling one yeah. and Howling seven, but <laughs> just bookend it <laughs> that way. Yeah. I I will say this about that is it's juxtaposed with now completely Crypt Keeper puppet Jack with Griffin Dunn voicing him. But I, I'll there's another little bit of detail in there. He doesn't have any lips anymore. <laughs> so when Griffin Dunn talks, he can't like do the things that he got her lips for. I thought that. So was really how does weird. he say schmuck? Because at some point he's messing with his rotten face, and I feel like maybe he's like using his hand to form the word. Oh, I didn't notice that. Okay. Mm. That I could see that. See, again, it's just the little things like that. Yeah. I'll have to go back and rewatch this now. Cause that is, I, I want to see the Disney tchotchkes and all this other stuff. So it's, yeah, the him saying schmuck was my, was my big question because he didn't yeah. have lips. And I was like, that's a really hard word to say without lips. I imagine. Right, like how how can yeah. you do that? But yeah, but he's it's it's funny to watch that go down, and you see David trying to muster courage, do something or whatever. But it's also it's played for laughs because he isn't a porno theater, and he's like sweating and gyrating around. And this guy <laughs> walks up to him like, "Excuse me, sir, I'm trying to have a good pull over here, and you're distracting me or whatever, you know." And says, <laughs> he's he obviously is turning into a werewolf, but it's I mean like what like of, of all places where you would interrupt somebody, maybe that setting wouldn't be the one. I don't know. <laughs> None of that want to make eye contact in that theater. Not that I've been in any. I'm just saying. You know. Yeah, I don't think those have existed for most of our life. I mean, no, I, that, yeah, this is like I don't think this happens anymore. But yeah, and the last Maybe time the I remember it happened was yeah. like Paul Rubens. No, no, Fred Willard <laughs> happened after that. Yeah, yeah. Fred so. Willard was in the 2000s, I believe. So there must be somewhere, but but it does set up a great end scene and that whole. Like the entire, I called it the smoking and the banditing of Piccadilly Circus, but it could be any, I mean, Blues Brothers, any kind of car wreck, travesty. All of that is amazing. And it's really when they, they cut the wolf really loose. And that looks awesome. Like I am just blown away by that whole five minute action sequence. To me, it was like if Blues Brothers had, the Blues Brothers car crashes were punctuated by like blood on the highway or one of those yes. Yes. scare films, because it wasn't just <laughs> yes. people getting hit by car- cars crashing. It was people getting hit by cars and pulverized. And a guy got his head run over and he burst like a bag full of Great. soup. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, he rips that cop's head off and it just rolls like a bowling ball. Um, you had people like getting pinned in between cars. There was just carnage everywhere in the best way, of course. It was pure chaos. Yes, know, which is, it was pure which, chaos. I think, and then what that's supposed to do, I think, is let us know, like, David needs to die. Evil needs to die tonight because <laughs> it's this. It can't. It can't control itself. Like, it, there's no way it, he ever will be able to. This. He's got to go. He's got to go. And, and it's not even anything he's doing. It's that he's such a. He's such an interruption to the natural world that, like, it's he's killing people without even. He's killing people just by like walking down the street. 
Yeah. And he's not even doing he's... anything. People are just like gawking at the werewolf and like running over cops. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it, I don't I don't I didn't get a full body count, but there's a lot of people to get killed in this scene. Like it's is gory and it goes on and on. There are definitely more people killed by cars than there are by the werewolf for sure. Right, right. And it's and it's more of that landish balance between the horror and comedy cuz as you're like, "Oh, the car crashes. This is fun. This is people are freaking out and yelling and running away." And then it's like, "Oh, that guy just got run over by a bus. Oh, that guy's head just got ripped off." And it's like you're chuckling and then like something terrible happens. They're like, "Oh, you that guy got pinned between two cars and now he's going to be in a wheelchair because he's got no legs from the thigh down." It's like right. you're kind of chuckling, but you're also very uncomfortable. Well, don't they say like fear and laughter are sort of in the same emotional band? They're not that far apart from one another anyway. So when you mix them together, it does create that mixed emotion. Yeah. I mean, I've laughed scared before. I think a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. It's just a natural because you're full of adrenaline and laughing is... Mm-hmm getting that oxygen into your lungs to help <laughs> clear you, that you, out. You say that Lindsay and I'm, I'm sitting here chuckling myself because that is my wife's reaction to anything that's supposed to be quote scary. And she will just cackle at it and like hysterically, like she just thinks it's <laughs> funny. And yep. so, yeah, like Guilty. the first time I showed that woman, the exorcist, she laughs the whole time through it. I don't know that she was actually scared by it or she thought it was funny, but maybe both. Know, yeah, but it could have been a little above. But yeah. Did she even laugh at the spinal tap scene? Because that's the one that that gets me. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was that was an eh, you know, don't don't talk about that. But yeah, that was the that was an ick factor. But uh, yeah, I, no, but I, I love how the you know, the werewolf goes down the alley because it's trying to get away from the. Oh, that looks like a mess over there. I don't need to be involved in that anymore. And. Alex is uh boy the cops man like that's a great barricade she just runs right through them <laughs> not even there <laughs> and uh but I do love how, how she pauses him and they do that this is like a subtle little thing this is again why practical effects are so awesome because there's light actually on things she tells him David I love you and like it's like his face relaxes for like one second and it's mm-hmm. almost like humanity mm-hmm. gets just one last second to stop the wolf and then when it lunges at her is when they they gun him down yeah, you see that little twinkle in his eye or glint in his eye that there's still that he understands somewhere, even as a werewolf, he can hear her. Well, and it's the traditional monster movie ending, you know, King mm-hmm. Kong's got to die. Yeah. Twas beauty killed the beast, and they even make a. Uh, they mentioned it earlier in the movie that someone asked, you know, does it have to be someone who who loves you that has to kill the werewolf? And indirectly, yeah. she is the reason, one of the reasons why he dies, because he does make that lunge at her, because she does follow him down, and the police feel like they have to act before they can, you know, get the tranquilizer guns out or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very kind of bittersweet ending because, you know, because they do establish that this relationship is, has grown into something more than I think either one of them expected. And Mm -hmm. it's a very kind of sweet moment, but it's that lulls you in that you think, Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be nice. It's going to be the, the monster's going to soften. The police are probably going to kill it anyway. We get the King Kong ending, but no, it's still the werewolf and it still is a killing machine. Yeah. 
But I love how they, they cut away from him on the ground to her sobbing, then back to him on the ground. So you get one last shot of naked David, bloody, you know, gunshot mm-hmm. wounds, and then smash cut, blue moon. And I was like, wow. <laughs> like that just hits right I, in the face. It's like, wow, that, that was a choice. I did laugh at that. Like that was my immediate reaction <laughs> to the <laughs> smash cut <laughs> and credits. And I just was like, yeah. oh. Awesome. I guess I'll I guess I'll work now. The movie's over. So Well, as the movie ends, so ends the podcast. We're getting to the point of the show where we give our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. And Jay, what are your thoughts on American Werewolf in London? My biggest thought is, and I thought this five years ago when I finally watched it, it was like I'm a Mad that it took me that long to finally get around to seeing this one because I wish this movie had been in my you know head and life a lot longer because it's so much fun and we've talked about all the things that work about it and that you know the effects it still holds up and all of that stuff but it's just fun it's just a fun movie uh, it doesn't ask a lot of you you can nitpick and ask a ton of questions if you want but you don't really need to you can just kind of sit there and let it roll and then smash cut right into a 45 and you're done but y'all i went whole hog with this i don't only watch this one again because it's on peacock as as time of recording here but it's sequel american werewolf in paris is also on peacock and i decided i had 94 minutes to burn and i just had to know and i boy i could i could spend another hour talking about that but all the needle drops in this that are so good. Imagine if you replace those with late nineties, post grunge, pop rock, sludge, bush and lit and all that kind of stuff. And movie with Tom Everett Scott and poor Julie Delpy and a lot of bad CGI like that. that, It does not have a great legacy. And Landis himself said it's a, bad move but uh maybe save a yeah. little bit of that for our inevitable american werewolf in paris episode <laughs> i mean i think we're gonna have to come back to it someday because i i need both of you to suffer through that with me for sure I did for this but but I, I wanted to just because i wanted to see like where would you pick it up from and where they pick it up from is insane but this movie by itself ton of fun absolute certified classic uh, for sure. I'm I'm going to give it the whole thing. I'll give it an extra large popcorn. I think it was a blast and it's a real good ride. So yeah, two thumbs, extra large, definitely watch it. Lindsay? I liked it. It was, it was really good. I, I can't, I don't, it's not an extra large for me. Uh, it's not a large for me, but it's a good medium. I'll put it on my rewatch for sure. I would rewatch it again, especially, um, I don't know, anytime, especially if it's still available on a streaming network that I have. I mean, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. But, I, but you know, like a good medium popcorn, there's butter, there's salt it's satisfying it's a it's a night after a good werewolf kill popcorn there you go yeah <laughs> she you're in a good mood after that scares both of us you're, <laughs> you're in a good mood after <laughs> as for me i'm going to split the difference between the two of you and i'm going to go with a large popcorn horror comedy is to me one of the hardest things for anyone to pull off and this movie pulls it off. 
like the amount of bad horror comedies I've seen versus the amount of good horror comedies I've seen. It's, it's like the good horror, the good horror comedies are werewolves and the bad horror comedies are all the people that get murdered by werewolves. It's, it's a real big (laughs) imbalance there. (laughs) This is one of the ones that works. And I feel like this is the reason why you got a lot of those horror comedies in the eighties. I feel like if it wasn't for this being successful, you wouldn't have had Fright Night. Because what's Fright Night? It's like American mm. Vampire and Calabasas or wherever, uh, wherever that's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. <a place. laughs> Suburbia. Yeah. yeah. Or you wouldn't have the Lost Boys. You wouldn't have a lot of things that, that feel like they're somehow slightly related to this. So, uh, like I said, split the difference, and I'm going to do a large popcorn. And that about wraps it up for us here. As always, you can follow the show's social media at Filmstrip Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. There you will find announcements about upcoming shows and a link to our letterbox page, which contains our entire list of reviews, all 300-something of them. There's a lot. Go to filmstrippodcast.com to check out our anchor.fm distribution site, where you can find us on your podcast platform of choice, Apple, Spotify, Google, etc., Please share the show, and if you can, leave us a positive review as it helps other people find us out. For Jay and Lindsay, I'm Ron. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.